Good morning. I've been given the prose to read scripture this morning. And today's scripture reading will be from Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, in the words, um, let the words of your servant's mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer through Christ. Amen. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward it is the Lord Christ you are serving. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks so much, Gary. You know, the best children's stories always involve chocolate. Do you guys know that? There is extra chocolate up here, so if any of you want some after the service, but you, same rules, you have to get permission from an adult, another adult, before you enjoy it. Um, so glad you're here. If you are new or visiting, welcome to you. My name is Chris. I serve as the pastor here, and it's a joy to be together and to worship God and to hear from God, to respond to God through singing and to hear from him through his word, to pray. All of these interactions really help to, to stoke and to kindle a relationship with him, which is what he wants. And God wants us to express and enjoy and receive a relationship with him in every part of life every part of life. So this fall, we're exploring what does it look like to pursue a relationship with God even in our work, in our day-to-day work? And what's the connection between our faith and our work? My guess is for many of you, um, it might even seem foreign or a little bit jarring when you think, "Ah, my work really has very little to do with my faith. But in fact, scripture teaches that God wants to be a meaningful part of our work and the way we work and the work itself that we do is one way of expressing our faith in Christ and of honoring God. Now I should be clear, and we're being clear, hopefully I'll remember to say this every week during this series this fall, by work, we're defining this very, very broadly. So this doesn't just mean a nine to five, although it does mean a nine to five. But if you... Put it this way, anything we do that's not rest or recreation, you could consider to be work. And so the premise of the whole series is simple, that God cares about our work. God cares about your work. And so we're looking at our work, the things we do to occupy our time, whether, you're, whether you work a nine-to-five, whether you're retired, whether you're a student, whether you're a stay-at-home parent, whether you're a gig worker and you're kind of piecing things together two or three different places, whether you volunteer, all of those, in this sense, are considered work. And we're looking at six different kind of domains of our work. This morning is a little bit unique in that this is really the only, (laughs) it's really the only uh, domain that we'll be looking at where we're thinking about our work itself. All the other weeks, in some sense, we're thinking around work, and we're kind of thinking about how we work. And we're thinking, and and it's true, how we work matters, and the way that we do our work 
matters, but this morning we're going to zero in directly on the work itself. The work itself. Do you believe that your work itself matters? If you're a cashier at a grocery store, that somehow the work you do checking out people's groceries, somehow that actually matters to God. And so whether you're a cashier, whether you're a nurse, whether you're a salesperson, whatever you do matters to God. If you're a student or if you're in sales, the report that you write for your teacher or for your supervisor matters. And not just how you write the report and the spirit in which you write it and that you don't plagiarize this or that, but, but God cares that the report is accurate and that it represents the data fairly and that it's, it's even-handed and and he even cares about things like content and style. If you're in sales, like, do you believe that God actually cares about that sale that you're going after? And he cares about the terms of the deal. And he cares about, about it genuinely being a win-win situation for everybody and one in which we don't take advantage unfairly of somebody else. All of these things, like a lot of these things, they seem so ordinary. They seem almost pedestrian. And they just seem like, you know, faith is what I do Sunday morning and then you're closing a deal. That's what I do on Thursday. But actually, God wants to be present for all of it. And in fact, oftentimes, the things that we think are most ordinary and most inconsequential, we're most surprised to learn that God cares deeply about. God cares about the ordinary. The ordinary matters. So do you believe that the ordinary things that you do in your day-to-day life, however you describe them, whatever kind of work you do, matters to God? Or is God disinterested in what you do? Last week we thought about kind of the first in this first part in the series, what does it look like to model godly character through our work? And we saw that, that the kind of integrity that God longs for and that honors God It doesn't come through us just working harder to have more integrity. It's actually a gift from God's Spirit. And as His Spirit fills us, then we inevitably grow that, kind of like an apple tree just inevitably grows apples. It can't help it. But it comes from God Himself. And the proper posture is to receive that as a gift from God instead of trying to achieve it. This morning, we're thinking in similar lines, but about our work itself. And we'll see that as we receive God's spirit, he doesn't just transform our heart in our work, but he transforms our work itself. And we see that in this little section in Colossians 3. Colossians is a book that Paul, the apostle, wrote to a church in a region called Colossae. It was in what is now basically modern-day Turkey in the Middle East. And in Colossians 3, Paul is fleshing out how does our faith affect these just normal everyday relationships in our lives? How does it affect the relationship between a husband and a wife? How does our faith in Christ affect our relationships between parents and children? And then he goes to this place that's jarring a little bit to our ears. How does this relationship with Christ affect the relationship between slaves and masters? To our modern American ears, that's jarring. And because of our history, it should be jarring. But it's important to remember that Paul is not writing to 21st century Americans. He had no idea what was coming down the pipe. 
1,700 years after he lived. He is writing to first-century Middle Easterners in the Roman Empire. And slavery, as Paul describes it, and as it looked in the Roman Empire and in the ancient Middle East, looked a lot different than what we think of today when we hear the word slavery. So first, we have to do a little bit of work figuring out what is the context in which Paul is writing? What does Paul mean by slavery so that we can see what this actually means for us today? We hear the word slavery and we think of, well, American slavery, race-based chattel slavery, but that's not how it looked in the ancient world at least. Ancient slaves were not generally considered property for starters, like American slaves were. And slavery in the ancient world wasn't usually based on race. Slavery in the ancient world was really actually more like what today we would call being an indentured servant. Now, ancient employment structures and ancient economic structures looked a lot different from modern employment and economic structures. So nowadays, if you take on debt, you can just go to the bank and get a bank. If you're indebted to somebody, you can get a loan from the bank and then pay your debt off and then slowly pay the bank back. They didn't have banks 2,000 years ago in the ancient Middle East. And so if you incurred a debt that you couldn't pay, a very common way to get through that and to pay back that debt was to offer yourself as what they called a slave. You see why I'm saying this is actually kind of more like being an indentured servant. So the master, the person to whom you submitted, paid your debt. And then you worked for that person for a set period of time, maybe five to seven years. Seven was a pretty common number, we think. And after that period of time, after your debt was paid off, you were set free. It was really more of an economic arrangement. Now, I'm not looking to justify ancient slavery. Let me be clear. And, and ancient slavery was not um, the most pure moral institution either. I just want to be clear that the slavery Paul talks about in Colossians 3, as he's talking about slaves and masters, is not the slavery we think of in modern America. And anybody who says, that, well, the Bible talks about slavery and says slaves obey your masters, therefore slavery is justified, is grossly misreading what the scriptures say about slavery. There actually were instances we know in ancient history where slave masters mistreated their slaves. There are still times today when employers mistreat their employees. So none of this is really new and none of this is novel. This is why, by the way, just a few verses later, this wasn't part of the scripture reading, but if you read three or four verses later into Colossians chapter four, you want to know how Paul starts? He's continuing the letter. He says, masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. In other words, see, it's not a far jump to say employees, employers treat your employees by doing what is right and fair. And that helps give us a little bit of insight that, that Paul uses the word slave in this context, but because slavery looked so different, we can actually learn a fair bit in the realm of what we call modern day employment. Your job, your work. That's how we can look at these verses and see our work matters. Because the very next thing Paul says is this, whatever you do, Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as though you're working for the Lord and not for man, for another human. 
Whatever you do, work with all your heart. In other words, Paul's saying, work hard and do good work. Make really good work, Monday through Friday or whatever your work schedule looks like. Don't slack off. Don't just scrape by. Don't clock in right at starting time and punch out right at quitting time to the minute. Work, in fact, Paul, the rubric Paul gives us is work as though you are working for the Lord. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a really simple question. Maybe it's overly simplistic. I don't know. But it's worth considering. Paul says, work as if you were working from the Lord. So imagine, what if the Lord, what if God were your direct supervisor? Would that change your work? Would it change the quality of your work? Would it change the output? Would it change how hard you work? Now, if you remember from our series back this summer, if you were with us this summer, we spent, uh, we spent a long time looking at the first three chapters of the Bible, really the first three pages of the Bible, Genesis 1 through 3. And we saw, even in that series, that when God creates everything, the work that he's doing in creation is largely taking the disorder and the chaos that was present in the world and creating order and beauty out of the disorder and chaos of the world. And then he invites Adam and Eve, the first humans, into his work, into his work of creating order and beauty from disorder and chaos. Which means that much of their work, and therefore much of our work, really is about creating order and beauty out of disorder and chaos. And the more we find ourselves doing that, the more we find our work aligned with the work of God. God cares about your work, even, even the most ordinary. Quick throwback to Genesis 2. I never noticed this until just this week. One of the very first jobs God gives Adam is to name the animals. I don't know what that looks like, but apparently God had made all these animals and they didn't have names. And he says, Adam, it's your job to give them names. And Genesis sets the scene, and then it describes Adam starting the work, and it describes I mean, it really is as though God is sitting there listening in to Adam's work. And so he goes, that's a, you know, whatever, elephant. That's a tiger. That's a, and God is like really interested. It said the Lord almost was eager to hear what Adam would name the animals. I, I don't know. Maybe it was exciting. That doesn't sound like very exciting work to me, coming up with, with names and like, well, you're just categorizing things. You're just sorting things. It's just like the really ancient version of, of creating a nice Excel spreadsheet that organizes data. And yet God is, is like really interested in this work. Why? Because the ordinary matters. And our work matters to God. We know that it matters to God because, here's the thing about, about order and beauty and creating order and beauty. As we pursue order and beauty, we find ourselves pursuing work that really genuinely contributes to the flourishing of all people. So think of, a, think of a, just, I mean, a very ordinary, seemingly thankless job. Imagine a hotel housekeeper. What is a hotel? I mean, is there, is there anything in a hotel housekeeper's job that does not fall under the description of creating order and beauty out of disorder and chaos? You go to an, into a disordered, chaotic room, because let's face it, at hotels, like who really makes the bed after themselves and who really? And, and you're taking this disorder and chaos and you're creating order and beauty out of it. Why? 
so that the next guest can have somewhere where they can really take a deep breath and relax and let their guard down and rest so that they can flourish. And we know this is true because most of us have probably also been to a cheap motel somewhere where they didn't take a whole lot of care to create order and beauty. In fact, they just left the disorder and chaos from the previous guest. And were you really able to let your guard down there? When I was in seminary, I worked at a grocery store um, for a number of years. I, I must have stocked, I mean, I don't know how many thousands of cans of beans. It's not, I can assure you, if you've never done it, it's not very exciting work. It is really ordinary, boring, mind-numbing work. But I'll tell you what, now, when I go to the store after work to pick up a can of beans on the way home, I really appreciate when the black beans are where the black beans should be, and when the labels are facing out, and when I don't have to reach all the way up to my armpit to the back of the shelf just to get a can, and when the price tag under the can of beans actually is the price for the black beans and not the navy beans. And like, do you get it? Like all of these little pedestrian, ordinary things actually matter. There's one author who writes that there is, there is joy to be found when we do something ordinary as if it were important. It's almost like that's what Paul is challenging us. To ask where in my work that seems really ordinary, that seems thankless, that seems pedestrian, where in my, my ordinary work can I treat it as if it's important? Paul teaches that when we take it with that mindset, it's not just some sort of little life hack for helping you find more meaning or purpose at work. It's not just some little trick you play on your mind to get through the day a little bit easier. Paul says you actually honor God when you do even the little thankless things well, when you make good work. So with the rest of our time this morning, I want to look at three motives that Paul gives. He gives us three motivations to do ordinary work well. We're going to look the way Paul categorizes it, or at least the lens I like to look at it through, is that he gives us a past motivation, a present motivation, and a future motivation. We're going to look at those three, and we're actually going to look at them in, in reverse order, starting with the future motive. The future motive is simple, and it's really obvious. Paul tells us, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as though working for the Lord and not for man, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Somehow, I don't know how, Paul says when we work hard as though for the Lord, there is an inheritance, a reward that will come. And this is really difficult, especially when the work is ordinary and when we don't like, we just don't feel like it. It's so easy to just mail it in, isn't it? It's so easy to not call those last two or three references. It's so easy to not wipe down the equipment at the gym. And who's going to even like know or see or notice? Does it really matter? But Paul says, even when you don't see the immediate benefit, there is an inheritance or a reward. And just because you don't see it or notice it now doesn't mean it's not there. It's, it's kind of like, think, think about, you, you decide, okay, I want to I start um, eating healthier and I want to start going to the gym. 
you know what, after two days of eating healthier and going to the gym, you don't see or notice a reward, do you? In fact, after two weeks, you don't really, you're just sore all the time and you're more tired and you really, really want like something sweet. But then after two months, you start to notice a little bit of a change and my goodness, two years into eating well and exercising well, you notice a significant transformation. Just because we don't see it in the here and now doesn't mean it's not there, Paul teaches us. Simply put, when we work hard as if for God and not for humans, there is some inheritance or reward. He doesn't even specify what it is. I'm not sure he has to. Just knowing that, that there is something is a helpful motivation. That's the future motivation. There's a present motivation too. Right after that, he says, he, he, I mean, really specifies and says, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Simple motive. We work hard because we're actually serving Christ. And we want to honor, we want to honor him. Good work honors Jesus. I don't think I have to explain this too much, but let me just give a quick illustration to make sure we're all on the same page. Like what we do reflects back on the people with whom we're associated. So just this week, we found out, I found out that Elliot had done something at school that was, um, I was just really proud of her for it. And it was funny this morning, I was thinking about what it was and I don't even, I've already forgotten what it was. Don't remember, so don't ask. But she had done something and I got to sit down and have one of those conversations, you know, as a parent, like it's really fun to have these conversations. You sit down with your kid. I got to tell her, Elliot, you know, when you did X, I'm so proud of that. And, and when you did that, you actually honored mommy and me. And I know you may not understand it, but you did. And she may not understand it, but the simple fact is her last name is Dunaway and our last name is Dunaway. And so the way she works and the way she behaves and the way she is, is generous with her friends reflects back on Jamie and me. And it either honors or dishonors us. Paul is saying it's really not that different with our heavenly family, with our heavenly father. So that, so that the way we work and the, actually the work itself that we do reflects on him. So when you expertly negotiate a conflict between two coworkers, and instead of jumping in the fray or gossiping or you know, letting yourself talk about people behind their backs, you actually, you actually work to make peace instead of stirring the pot even more, that honors Christ. When it's your turn to bring the snacks to the kids' soccer game for halftime or at the end of the game, and just, just like you just bring a thoughtful, good, healthy snack, that, somehow that honors Christ. People see and people notice, and it reflects back on our Heavenly Father, and they start to wonder. They might start to ask something like this, they might say, that Jane, I'm just making up a name here, Jane, what, what is it about her? She's, she's the most compassionate nurse I know, but she's not just a compassionate nurse, like she's a competent nurse. She's a really good nurse, and she cares really well for her patients, and she goes to bat for them, and just last week, she went up to that young know-it-all attending and just gave him the business because he was not treating her patients very well. She's a good nurse. 
And I know she goes to church, and I've, I've overheard her tell patients she's praying for them, and she's not brazen about it, but she just does. Like, what is it about her God that makes her such a good nurse? Do you see, the, you see how that connection works? It's subtle, but it's there. Simply by doing good work, by doing an excellent job at whatever it is God has called us to do, by not cutting corners, by not mailing it in, by not doing the bare minimum, but by doing excellent work, we honor Christ. That's what Paul says. Now, to be sure, you, you, you don't have to be a Christian to do good work. Like, you can, you can want nothing to do with Jesus and still do really good work. I'm not saying that. And being a follower of Jesus certainly means more than just doing good work. But Paul seems to indicate it doesn't mean doing any less than that. Whatever you do, he says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as if you are working for the Lord and not for man. In your ordinary work, you are actually working for the Lord. You are actually serving Christ. How does that affect your work? Now, there's one danger that I want to I be careful to address here. And as we think, especially we've thought about kind of our future motive, that there's an inheritance, and then we think about our present motive, that we are serving Christ even in the moment, it would be really easy and wrong to think that we are working hard in order to get something from God. I'm working hard just to get the inheritance. I'm working hard just to get his approval. That can't be true. We know that can't be true because if, if that's the case, then God actually owes you. You're working to get something from him and now he is indebted to you. And if God owes you anything, then he's not God. In fact, you are. So that can't be it. How do we deal with that inconsistency? And the answer to that comes in looking not only to our future motives and not only to our present motives, but actually to our past motivation. This is more implicit, but it is no less important. Now we picked up, the scripture reading picked up in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, which is pretty far into chapter 3. Let me read for you how Paul begins chapter 3. He says this, since you have been raised with Christ, because you have been raised with Christ, set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand. And the whole rest of chapter 3, and really even into Colossians 4, is Paul fleshing out different fill-in-the-blank um, uh, the next part of that sentence. Since you have been raised with Christ, set your mind on things above. Since you have been raised with Christ, work with all your heart because you're serving Christ. What's he saying? That everything we do, including the hard work that God calls us to, the excellent, the good work that God calls us to, is rooted not in us creating something, not just because we need to work hard. Our work is rooted in the work that God has already done. We have been raised with Christ. In other words, our work is rooted in God's work, and it's a response to his work because he has raised us with Christ. The roots, the soil out of which our good work grows is the resurrection of Jesus 
and therefore our resurrection is we're united with him. Earlier, earlier in Colossians, Paul actually writes this. He says, you were alienated from God. Past tense, you were alienated from God and we were enemies in our minds because of our evil deeds. We were alienated from God and we were enemies of God, Paul writes. That's pretty strong language. And it's, let's just be clear. God was never our enemy. Paul says we were his enemy. But of course, God is consistent. And so the very same God who teaches us to love our enemies was willing to set the tone and lead by example by loving us even when we were his enemies. He put his money where his mouth is. And just like we talked about during the children's story, he didn't insist that we approach him. He approached us. Even while we were alienated from him, while we were strangers, John, another disciple, another apostle, puts it this way in one of his letters. He says, um, we love because he first loved us. We can only love because Jesus has loved us. It's not inappropriate to twist that a little bit with work or to just substitute work and say we, we can only work well because he has first worked well on our behalf. Here's how Jesus himself puts it in John 15. He says, you did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you so that you may bear much fruit. You see, we, we work for Christ because Christ has first worked for us. We don't work for Christ in order to get him to work for us. We work for Christ because he has first worked for us. It is the Lord Christ you are serving in your work, Paul teaches. But remember, the Lord Christ has first served you. He has served each of us far more profoundly than we could ever serve him. And thanks be to God for that. If you think about what Jesus did as his work, and what was it other than his work, it makes perfect sense. All the work that he did to buy us back, to redeem us from our slavery to sin and to death. If you look at Jesus' perfect life, if you look at Jesus' death, if you look at Jesus' resurrection, all of that was what? It was good work. It was good work. He didn't, he didn't quit when he was halfway done. No, in fact, on the, on the cross, he, he was tempted. You remember the people challenged him and they started mocking him and said, if you're really the son of God, get down from this cross and prove it. But he stayed. Why? Because he was going to finish the work. And the very last thing he said, one of the very last things he says on the cross is what? It is finished. He did good work. And he didn't do it just half-heartedly. He didn't look for the easy way out. It, he wanted there to be an easier way. Remember his prayer in the garden the night before. He said, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Lord, if there's any easier way to get out of this thing, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, Everything we do, even our ordinary, everyday, pedestrian, boring work, matters. Because in God's economy, the ordinary matters. God wastes nothing. It matters because we are serving Christ, Paul teaches, who has served us and worked for us, who's died for us. 
And so even in our work, we get to bring Christ to our work as we work for him, and we get to see God at work. Amen.